It's good to be with you again at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you keys to successful living, which God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. We're drawing near to the Easter season, that special season when Christians all around the world commemorate the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this, I've chosen a theme for my talks for the next four weeks, which will help you to understand more clearly the true significance of the death of Jesus and to enter more fully into all that he obtained for us by his death. The theme that I've chosen for this Easter season is identification. That needs a word of explanation. To identify with someone means to make yourself one with someone. This concept of identification is the key to a true understanding of the Easter message. There are two sides to this process of identification, like the two opposite sides of a single coin. Both of them relate to Jesus. On the one side, Jesus identified himself with us, with sinners, with the whole fallen human race. On the other side, we are invited to identify ourselves with Jesus in all that followed his death, that is, burial, resurrection, and even ascension to the very throne of God. Today we'll begin by looking at the first side of the coin, the identification of Jesus with us. Have you ever stopped to consider what title Jesus used most often of himself? If I were to ask you to venture an answer, I question whether many of you would come up with the correct answer. The title that Jesus used most often for himself was not Saviour or Messiah or Son of God, but Son of Man. Isn't that remarkable? Actually, this title occurs about 80 times in the Gospels. Now, this phrase or title Son of Man has a background in the Old Testament scriptures. It's found in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This chapter records a tremendous and wonderful vision that Daniel had of something that was going to happen in the future, something that was relating to the setting up of a kingdom that would never pass away, a kingdom that was to be ruled by a ruler specially chosen of God. And that ruler in the minds of the Jewish people became identified with Messiah. But really the title that applies most accurately to what we're saying now is not Messiah, which means the Anointed One, but this title, Son of Man. Now I'll read those two verses from Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God himself. And he, this son of man, was presented before him, the Ancient of Days. And to him, this son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now I want to say just a word or two about the language used. I've been something of a student of languages most of my life. I've studied a number of different languages, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, to a little extent Aramaic, as well as a number of modern languages. You may or may not be aware, but the Old Testament, as we know it, was presented to us in two languages, mainly in Hebrew. But some passages in Aramaic, which was another Semitic dialect which the Jews really picked up during the Babylonian captivity. Now, this particular passage of Daniel, which I've read, was written or presented to us in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word for son of man is ben Adam. That means a son of Adam. It places that person right in descent from Adam, the forefather of the human race. But in Aramaic, the phrase for son of man is bar enosh, where enosh is again man, bar is son in Aramaic, but enosh means man essentially in his weakness, in his frailty. It always has that connotation of man as some kind of a mortal being that's subject to weakness and frailty. So there's a kind of deliberate paradox. This son of man, this son of frailty and weakness is portrayed here as being brought into the very presence of Almighty God and there a kingdom is bestowed upon him which is going to be the kingdom of all kingdoms that will have dominion over all other kingdoms and will never pass away. Now this is the very title that Jesus applied to himself in his discourses recorded in the Gospel. And personally I think it's very probable that Jesus spoke Aramaic so he would actually be using this title Bar Enosh, the Aramaic form. And for the Jewish people of his day, the moment he used that phrase, Bar Enosh, it was virtually, without any question, a claim to be the Messiah. Jesus used this title, Son of Man, of himself, in two different aspects or contexts. He applied it to himself in humility. For instance, in Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, a kind of wanderer, without a fixed residence or abode. And in Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's humility. But he also applies it to himself in glory for the future. He says in Matthew 16:27 For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And in Matthew 26:64 In the future, he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's very close to Daniel's vision. There it speaks of the Son of Man in his glorified, revealed being as the appointed ruler by God for the whole universe. So we have this interesting paradox of the Son of Man representing frailty and weakness and yet being the one whom the Jewish people looked forward to as the one who would restore the kingdom to Israel and become the ruler of all nations. This phrase that we're talking about, Son of Man, when applied to Jesus, who was also Son of God, portrays a unique combination of humanity with divinity. He's perfectly God, but he's also perfectly man. 
Now this was predicted in various places in the Old Testament. For instance, in the well-known passage in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. So this child born of the virgin, though he's a human child, is also God with us. And that word, that name, title, Emmanuel, is not two words, it's one, which beautifully portrays humanity and divinity blended in the one person. And then a little further on, Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he, this child, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here's this person, born as a child, but given as the eternal son, and yet this child is also the mighty God. So there we have Bar Enosh, human frailty, and yet divine authority and might blended in the same person. This is also beautifully brought out in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, for instance, in Luke chapter 3, where his genealogy is given in the fullest form, he's traced right back to the son of Adam, the son of God. He was the representative of the whole human race. He became totally identified with all humanity, not merely with his own Jewish people. Interestingly, in Matthew, which is a gospel primarily addressed to the Jewish people, his genealogy is traced back only to Abraham. But in Luke, which is the message in a sense to all humanity, his genealogy is traced back to Adam, the son of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, uh, Paul bestows upon him this exciting title, which contains so much in it. He speaks about him as the last Adam. What does that mean? Well, as the last Adam, first of all, he's perfectly a member of the human race. He's totally identified. He's perfectly human. And then he's the last. Not the last in time, because, of course, millions and millions of descendants of Adam have been born since the time of Jesus. But he's the last in the sense that when he died on the cross, all the sins, all the frailties, all the weaknesses, all the problems that stemmed from the sin of Adam and all his descendants, both past and future, all that came upon Jesus when he died on the cross. This is the point I want to emphasize throughout this week. It all came on Jesus. He became our substitute. He was the Son of Man. He was the last Adam. And when he died, it was all terminated. It was finished. It was dealt with. All problems were solved by the death of Jesus on the cross. During this Easter season, which is now approaching, I've chosen a theme for my talks for the next four weeks which will help you to understand more clearly the true significance of the death of Jesus and to enter more fully into all that he obtained for us by his death. The title that I've chosen for this special Easter theme is Identification, and I explained that. To identify with someone means to make yourself one with someone. This concept of identification is the key to a true understanding of the Easter message. There are two sides to this process of identification, like the two opposite sides of a single coin. On the one side, Jesus identified himself with us, with sinners, with the whole fallen human race. On the other side, we are invited to identify ourselves with Jesus in all that followed his death.
that is, burial, resurrection, and even ascension to the very throne of God. Today I'm going to speak about the ultimate purpose for which Jesus became the Son of Man, just how God's purpose could only be fulfilled in this way. Even the closest disciples of Jesus failed to understand this purpose until after his death and resurrection. Nevertheless, the whole plan of God was unfolded in amazing detail and accuracy by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before it was actually fulfilled in history. This prophetic revelation is contained in Isaiah chapter 53. And in my message today, I'm going to read that entire chapter, but I'm going to read it in four successive sections, each section containing three verses. I'll begin now with the first three verses of Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, that's the arm of the Lord, this person, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let's pick out just a few of the main features of that part of the prophetic revelation. See how they applied to Jesus. First of all, we're warned right at the beginning against unbelief. Who has believed our message? That's very important. The great barrier to understanding this is unbelief. And then we see that a person is unfolded who's called the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is that part of God, if I may use that phrase, with which he acts, with which he operates, with which he performs his will. So this person is somehow God's main instrument to perform his will. And then it speaks about his own frailty. He was like a tender shoot. And you remember in my talk yesterday, I emphasized how the title Bar Enosh, Son of Man, in Aramaic, particularly focuses on human frailty. And then it speaks about the spiritual barrenness of the situation. He was like a root out of a dry ground. And then it emphasizes his humility as a person and also his social humility. He was not a prince. He was not a ruler. He was not from the priestly tribe or caste. He was just a humble man. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Furthermore, he went lower still. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Then we go on to the next three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, about this same person, this Bar Enosh, this son of man. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This passage particularly emphasizes that the sufferings of Jesus on the cross so vividly described there were substitutionary. It was not for his own sake. It's emphasized all the way through. He took our infirmities. 
that first phrase in chapter 4, surely he took up our infirmities. The Hebrew language used particularly emphasizes the he. There's a form of speech I won't go into which places all the emphasis on the he. He took our infirmities. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We all have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see that in everything that came upon Jesus on the cross, it was not that it was due to him, it was due to us the judgment, the punishment, the humiliation, the shame. But though it was due to us, by divine appointment, it came upon him, upon Jesus. Where it says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that Hebrew word has laid on means has made to meet together. So the shame, the sin, the rebellion, and all the evil consequences thereof, were made by God to meet upon Jesus. He became the last Adam, as I said in my talk yesterday. In him, the entire evil inheritance, due to the sin of the Adamic race, was exhausted. He left nothing that he did not take upon himself. He bore every burden. He was totally our substitute. He was our God-appointed representative, son of man, bearing in himself the perfect nature of humanity and all humanity's problems, griefs, and agonies. I'm going on now with Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7, 8, and 9. He, this Son of Man, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. There are various things emphasized there, all of which applied with perfect accuracy to the trial and the death of Jesus. First of all, his innocence is consistently emphasized. It says in the closing verse, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Also, it's emphasized that he did not attempt to defend himself or to plead his own cause. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He did not justify himself. He did not defend himself. He was the lamb laid willingly to the slaughter. Then it's emphasized that his trial was unjust. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. It was a judgment, but it was a judgment of oppression. It was unjust. And it emphasizes that he died. He was cut off from the land of the living, but he didn't die for himself, for the transgression of my people, Isaiah says. He was stricken. And then with amazing accuracy it gives the details of his death. It says he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. But the remarkable fact is that in the original Hebrew the word wicked is in the plural, but the word rich is singular. True enough, in the record of the Gospels, Jesus was crucified with the two thieves, the two wicked men, but then his tomb was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the one rich man. So we see every detail exactly fulfilled in Jesus. Now we go on to the last three verses, which sum it all up. Isaiah 53, verses 10, 11, and 12. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his soul or his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life or his soul unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We see that although there was oppression and injustice, yet it was the fulfillment of God's purpose. It was the Lord's will to crush him. God had foreordained that it should be this way. Then we see by implication his resurrection. It has already spoken of his death, but it says after his death, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. That's after death. And then it says in the next verse, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And then it's emphasized that all this was to justify many, to acquit them of their guilt. It says, my righteous servant will justify many. And then it goes on to say, he will bear their iniquities. That's how justification or righteousness or acquittal is made possible to us. By the knowledge, Jesus, the Lord's righteous servant, bore our iniquities, suffered our punishment, and therefore turned away the wrath and the judgment of God from us. It says also that he poured out his life or his soul unto death. That's so vivid because in the Old Testament it says the soul or the life of the flesh is in the blood. And on the cross Jesus poured out his whole life, his entire blood as the sinner's substitute. It says also that he was numbered with the transgressors. We've pointed out already that he was crucified with the thieves. And finally that he made intercession for the transgressors. And that began even while he was on the cross. He said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So you see how perfectly accurate in every detail is this amazing prophetic picture of Messiah's sufferings, the sufferings of the Son of Man, given 700 years before it took place. Yesterday we looked at the marvelous prophetic preview of the sufferings and death of Jesus contained in chapter 53 of the prophet Isaiah. We looked at the entire chapter in overview picking out some of the many aspects that were exactly fulfilled in the experience of Jesus. Today, I want to focus in greater detail on just three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, which are the very heart of the prophetic message. I believe that no human mind can ever fully fathom all the mysteries of divine grace and wisdom that are contained in these three verses. So I'm going to read them again, rather slowly and carefully. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, I want to emphasize the substitutionary character of the death of Jesus here portrayed. The emphasis is on he 
and then, by contrast, us and our. So he became our representative, the Son of Man, the humble one, the one who fully partook of humanity. And then as our representative, Ben-Adam, the son of Adam, Bar-Enosh, the son of human frailty, there on the cross he took upon himself all our burdens, our guilt, our shame, our pain, our sickness, our sorrow, our grief. As I've said already, the human mind, I believe, can never fully comprehend all that transpired and all that was accomplished by this substitutionary death of Jesus. But let us bear in mind that Isaiah begins this chapter by warning us against unbelief. Who has believed our message? So let us deliberately, by an act of our will, renounce unbelief. Let us not reject the message because it's difficult for our little puny finite minds to comprehend the infinite nature of God's love and mercy and wisdom. Let us be willing to believe. In the New Testament, one of the writers says, through faith we understand. First comes faith, then comes understanding. I want to urge that upon you. Don't grapple with this thing with your own little natural carnal mind and fail to receive the message of God's love and mercy. Let's look at the beautiful phrases there. Surely he, as I said uh, yesterday, but I want to emphasize again, the Hebrew wording is such that all the emphasis is placed on the he. Surely he. In other words, look away from yourself. There is no solution to your problems in yourself. Don't dwell on your problems. Don't bend and bow beneath the burden of your guilt and all your problems. The solution is in looking away from yourself looking away to him, the substitute, the sacrifice, the Son of Man. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. A better, more accurate translation for sorrows is pains. He took our infirmities, he carried our pains, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. You see, unbelief only sees the outward facts of the death of Jesus, does not understand the inner meaning. I remember once speaking to a Jewish man in the, in the land of Israel and I told him that I believed that Jesus is the Messiah. His comment was interesting. He was not opposed, but he said, I can't believe that he was the Messiah because God would not have allowed him to suffer so terribly. It must have been a judgment upon him by God. And immediately there came to me these words, We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But, Isaiah goes on, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It wasn't for his own sins, but it was for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then we come to that sixth verse, which really is the absolute center of the whole message. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That word iniquity is better translated in modern English rebellion. But it's also used in the earlier passages of the Old Testament for the guilt offering, for guilt. So it is, and not just the 
rebellion of the human race, but also the punishment for that rebellion and the remedy for that rebellion. All of that was laid upon Jesus. You see, the common basic guilt of the human race is rebellion. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. It's not that we've all committed certain specific sins like murder or adultery or stealing. There may be many fine people by human standards who've never committed sins like that. But the one thing we've all done is we've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him that rebellion and all its evil consequences. The Lord made it all meet together upon him. I want you to ponder that phrase. The Lord made it meet together. Every act of sin, every feeling of guilt, every kind of shame and humiliation, and the physical consequences too, our pains, our infirmities, in the eternal will and counsel of God, it pleased the Lord, it says, to crush him. That crushing burden came upon Jesus, our substitute, the Son of Man. There's a picture in the book of Lamentations which really speaks so vividly of this. I just want to read these words, and as I read them, I want you to think of Jesus. Lamentations chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. Every one of those phrases is exactly true of Jesus there on the cross. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have come upon my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has handed me over to those I cannot withstand. Every single detail applies to Jesus. The yoke of our sins was woven by the hand of the Lord, Almighty God, and then laid on the neck of Jesus. And the Lord handed Jesus over to sinners, to evil men, to men he could not withstand. And willingly he submitted to their hands and became the sin offering the Lord made to meet together upon him the rebellion of us all and all its evil consequences. Now let us ask ourselves, what is our part of the exchange? Our rebellion and all its evil consequences came upon Jesus. He became our substitute, the Son of Man, the last Adam. He took all the evil that was due to us, that we might receive the good that was due to him. That's the essence of the exchange. How shall we sum up? What phrase or word can we use to describe that which God has made available to us on the basis of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? If I were to pick one word, the word that I would pick in English would be peace. But peace does not fully represent what I'm trying to communicate. The Hebrew word for peace, I'm sure many of you know, is shalom. That's the famous Hebrew greeting today, shalom. But shalom means much more in Hebrew than the word peace means in English. Peace is almost just the absence of war, of conflict, of strife. Many times we talk about peace when there's very little real harmony between people. But shalom means completeness, fulfillment, perfection. The root 
thought is to complete or to perfect or to make full. So what is offered to us is completeness, wholeness, harmony. It's much more than just peace. It's not just spiritual. It's not just inward. It's total wholeness, spirit, soul, and body. By his wounds we were healed. Physical healing is offered to us through the physical suffering of Jesus. He bore our transgressions. He was punished for our iniquities that we might have this inner peace. But the whole thing is summed up in the one word, peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness, harmony, reconciliation with God, reconciliation with our fellow believers, with all mankind, a deep, settled inner peace of heart and mind, a condition of harmony that makes for the healthiness of the body. All that is included in that beautiful word peace, shalom, which is offered to us. This week I'm sharing with you on a theme that is at the very heart and core of the whole message of the gospel, the theme of identification. By identification we mean making yourself one with someone else. The essence of the identification that we are speaking about in this series of messages is the identification of Jesus with the human race, how he became son of man, how he became truly man without losing his divinity, how he became identified with man, and how on the cross that identity came to its climax when the Lord laid upon him the iniquity, the rebellion, the guilt of us all. And then we spoke very briefly about the other aspect of the exchange, that which is made available to us, and I summed it up in the one word, peace, shalom, completeness, wholeness, harmony, well-being, spiritual, mental, physical, being totally what a person ought to be. That's what's offered to us. I emphasize particularly in my last talk the sixth verse of Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the rebellion of us all. I emphasize that the root problem of the human race is self-will. It's going our own way. It's not necessarily committing some dramatic sin like murder or adultery or stealing. But it's just turning from God's way and going our own way, turning our back on God, doing our own thing, living by our own standards, pleasing ourselves, making ourselves the center of the universe. Well, in my talk today, and the talks that will follow both this week and next, until Easter, I will be pointing out to you in succession various specific aspects of this divinely ordained exchange that was accomplished through the death of Jesus. I don't know of any theme better suited to the Easter season or more helpful in enabling us to enter personally into all that was obtained for us through the death of Jesus. The aspect of the exchange that I want to focus on today is contained in Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. I want to focus particularly on that statement, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus was punished 
for our sins because he became our substitute. You see, man's sin and God's mercy together created a problem that only God himself could solve. God longs to be merciful. He longs to forgive. But at the same time, justice is the very foundation of his throne and God cannot forgive on any other basis but that of perfect justice. He cannot compromise his own justice to forgive. This paradox, this tension is stated in a revelation that the Lord gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 verses 5 through 7. Moses had cried out to God. He said, let me see your glory. And then the Lord came down and gave him a personal revelation of himself. And these are the words in which it's described there in Exodus 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, that's with Moses, and proclaimed his name. The Lord proclaimed his own name. And he said this, the Lord. And then he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, that's the sacred name, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Notice the tension. God forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but because of his justice, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. So there's, if I may call it, the great problem for God. He wants to forgive the sinner, but he cannot condone his sin. His justice demands the punishment of the sin. His mercy longs to offer the sinner forgiveness and pardon. How could that problem be resolved? Only one person could resolve that problem, God himself. There was only one way that he could resolve the problem. It was through the sinner's substitute, through Jesus, the Son of Man, the last Adam, who became legitimately and totally identified with the sins that we'd committed and then suffered their full penalty so that God's justice was satisfied and he was free without compromising his justice to offer forgiveness. Paul states this in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, speaking about the substitutionary death of Jesus. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That word sacrifice of atonement is also used to denote the mercy seat that covered the ark in the tabernacle of Moses. Now that mercy seat was the only place where God appeared to man in the tabernacle and where God could offer man peace where the blood was sprinkled each day of atonement each year, and that mercy seat was over the ark which contained the Ten Commandments, which was the law that the sinner had broken. So the mercy seat was the covering of God's mercy that hid the broken law. But Jesus on the cross became that mercy seat, that sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And then it goes on to say, He, God, did this, to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. So God 
had this problem. He had passed over sin in past generations where there had been true repentance, but the sin had never been finally dealt with. It was God's forbearance. It was his long-suffering. It says about the sacrifices that were offered under the Old Covenant, they could not finally take away sin. But in them there was a remembrance again made of sins every year, and each day of atonement for the Jewish people, their sins were covered for one more year, but never finally dealt with. The only way that sin could be finally dealt with was by this substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, where God demonstrated his justice. He demonstrated his total uncompromising hatred for sin, even in the person of his beloved son. But at the same time, having demonstrated his justice, he made the way open for him to offer his pardon, his forgiveness, his peace. What then is the practical result for the one who, as a sinner, believes in this substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, has faith in his blood as the final sin offering? For he poured out his life, his soul, in his blood. It was the guilt offering. What happens? What's the result? It's beautifully described in many passages of Scripture. I will just choose two. The first one is Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Where it says in English, blessed is he, the Hebrew phrase is stronger. It's all the blessednesses, the countless blessings that come to the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered by that mercy seat that covered the broken law that I spoke about just a little earlier. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Notice there isn't a man who hasn't sinned. That's not the blessedness, because there is not such a man. But blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, whose sin has been covered by the mercy seat, whose punishment has come upon another, the sinner's substitute, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We have to bear in mind that we have to be absolutely sincere, open, and honest with God. It's no good trying to trick God. It's no good trying to fool God with mere external religious appearance. There has to be absolute openness and honesty in our spirit toward God. We cannot cover anything up. We cannot excuse anything. We simply have to put our faith solely and totally in the sinner's substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, these words are used to describe the consequences of this transaction, whereby we accept the fact that Jesus was punished for our sins, that we might have peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness. I've spoken about that word. This is what Paul says there in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, acquitted, counted righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There are some of the consequences. When we have accepted this sacrificial atoning death of Jesus on our behalf we have peace with God God's wrath has been dealt with he no longer counts our sins against us we no longer need to tremble as guilty sinners we no longer need to feel guilty and unworthy 
We've been justified. We've been acquitted. We're accepted. We have the right to the presence of God. We can move by faith into the grace of God in which we stand, something that, is, that we can stand in, something that's solid, that's permanent. And finally, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So it's peace, it's joy, it's stability, it's firmness, it's assurance. In my last three talks, I've been unfolding for you various aspects of the marvelous prophetic preview of the sufferings of Jesus contained in chapter 53 of the prophet Isaiah. I've spoken about how Jesus became identified with the human race as the Son of Man, the last Adam, how the Lord visited upon him the rebellion of the whole Adamic race, not only the rebellion but all the evil consequences of rebellion how the Lord made it meet all together upon Jesus as he hung there on the cross. And then yesterday I spoke about one particular aspect of the exchange that was accomplished there, how Jesus was punished for our sins, that we might have forgiveness, how God's justice was satisfied perfectly by the death of Jesus as our representative, bearing the responsibility for our sins, that in turn, without compromising his justice, God might offer to us forgiveness. Today I'm going to focus on yet another aspect of this wonderful exchange accomplished by the death of Jesus. It's one that is related to yesterday's, and yet it's significantly different. I'm going to read now verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 53, which contains this particular aspect of the exchange that I'm talking about today. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life or his soul a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the Lord made the soul of Jesus on the cross a guilt offering. Now the word in Hebrew that's translated guilt offering means both guilt and guilt offering. It's one and the same word. To understand that, we have to look at the picture of how sin offerings and guilt offerings uh, were carried out in, under the Mosaic law. The person who was guilty, who had something that he had to expiate before God, would bring his offering. It might be a sheep, it might be a goat, it might be a bullock, and uh, he would acknowledge the sin or the guilt that he had, and the priest, as his representative and acting on behalf of God at the same time, would lay his hands upon the head of the offering, the animal, whatever it was, sheep, goat, or bullock. And then as the man truly repented and confessed his sin to the priest, by that act of the hands laid on the head of the sacrificial offering, Symbolically, the man's guilt was transferred to the animal, and then the animal was slain, paying the penalty for the man's guilt, and thus the man could receive pardon and forgiveness. However, of course, that was only symbolical. It was a preview of what was actually accomplished in reality by the death of Jesus on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus became the sin offering, the guilt offering. Uh, in a certain sense, Almighty God laid his hand on the head of Jesus, transferred to him our guilt and our sin, 
and then Jesus died. He poured out his soul unto death. Again, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17.11 says, The soul of all flesh is in the blood. So as Jesus poured out his blood, drop by drop on the cross, until he'd emptied out the blood out of his body, he had poured out his soul, his total life, as the guilt offering, the substitute, the one who bore the guilt of the entire human race. I'm deeply impressed and touched by the phrase with which that verse opens. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. I've pondered on that word crush. I've meditated on it. And uh, I've thought to myself, of course Jesus suffered terribly physically. But I believe that crushing was not so much physical as spiritual. I believe that fearful burden of the guilt of all humanity as by the Father's hand it was laid upon the sun on the cross. I believe it was crushing. I believe it was more than even Jesus could endure. I believe it crushed the very life out of him. And it says it was the Lord's will to crush him. That's an astonishing statement, isn't it? Because how could God take pleasure in that awful scene of suffering? And yet it was so. It was the Lord's will because that was the only way through that divinely ordained exchange by which Jesus became the guilt offering. Only in that way could peace and pardon and righteousness be made available to us. And significantly there in that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, there is no relieving of the darkness, the awful darkness that permeates that chapter up till the 10th verse. But where it speaks about the Lord making his soul a guilt offering, then the darkness breaks and light comes. And the next words are, He will see his offspring, prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So once that has happened, then the way is open for the light to break forth, eternal light, reconciliation, peace, and healing. But only when this sin offering had been fully consummated could that take place. This is referred to by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5.21 but many Christians don't understand that because they don't realize that the same word means guilt and guilt offering or sin and sin offering. What Paul says referring to the death of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is this God made him, Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's actually quoting Isaiah 53.10. Most people don't perceive that because the word used in Isaiah is a guilt offering or a sin offering. But bear in mind it's one and the same word. The sin offering was the sin. The sin was the offering. The offering was the sin. They were identical. So Jesus was made the sin offering. He was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Note the exchange. Jesus became sin that we might have his righteousness. Against this background of Jesus as the sin offering on the cross, I want to look with you briefly at two other passages in Isaiah. The first is Isaiah 64, verse 6, and it speaks of the futility of self-righteousness. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. 
Notice, this is true of the entire human race. In Isaiah 53, it says, we've all gone astray like sheep. Here it says, we've all become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The best that we can do in our own righteousness is nothing but a filthy rag in God's sight. It is totally vain to come to God with our own righteousness. But God has made provision through the death of Jesus that we may receive his righteousness. Compare this other passage in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he, the Lord, has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Here is an expression of intense, tremendous, joy. I will rejoice greatly. My soul will exult. What's the reason? The reason is the outcome of this exchange. For God has clothed me with garments of salvation. He saved me from the consequences of my own sin. But not just that. After salvation, there comes righteousness. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. What a beautiful expression. That righteousness is not our own righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness that's made available to us through that substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And God doesn't just put that robe of righteousness on us. The language there is so beautiful. He wraps us with a robe of righteousness. He covers us totally. Every area of our old sinful, carnal nature, every mistake, every transgression, every sin is totally covered under that all-embracing robe of the righteousness of Jesus. We need to bear this in mind, that salvation in itself is not all. Or, put it another way, there's many different aspects to salvation. It's not just that we get, quote, saved, that our sins are forgiven and it ends there. But when we have salvation, then we have the robe of righteousness. We don't any longer come to God in our own righteousness. We're not concerned about trying to do the best that we can. There's something much higher than that. There's the righteousness of God made available to us through faith in Jesus. He wraps us around with his own righteousness. We never have to feel sinful or ashamed or apologetic any longer. And it's all so beautifully summed up in that one verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, one of my favorite verses. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There's nothing held against us. We're not guilty on any charge. We're acquitted on all counts. We don't appear before God trying to do our best or brushing up our own righteousness, but we're wrapped around with the robe of God's righteousness in Jesus. For more information about Derek Prince or Derek Prince Ministries, please visit our website at derekprince.org or call us at 1-800-448-3261.